Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. This is one of our special episodes when we focus on a book that you need to read. By talking with the author of the book, today we're joined by Carol Leonig, who is one of the co-authors of I Alone Can Fix It, Donald J. Trump's catastrophic final year. The book has received great reviews because it is a great story, one of the very, very best that I have read coming out of the Trump years. And if you could see me in my office right now, you would see a three-foot-long stack of those books. So. I've read, I've read all of them. Welcome, Carol. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, David. I'm glad to be here with you. Our audience is, uh, we lovingly refer to them as nerds, but they're mostly policy wonks. So they are really interested in the details of how the U.S. government works or in this particular case, how it does not work. I'm in the midst of doing yet another book on a different aspect of what happened in the Trump administration. And I've talked to a lot of people, and they describe the administration in phases, kind of associated with how Trump and those around him got to understand how the government works. The first book you guys did on this dealt with years one through three. This book deals with year four. By year four, even with the upheaval that we saw in it, Trump and those around him had a better idea of how they could get done what they wanted to get done. And as a result, they seemed to some inside and outside the administration is a little bit more unhinged. How do you compare years one through three with year four? You know, I actually think that Donald Trump really never cared about governing. And so the levers of power for governing weren't things he was trying to study or understand, even in year four. So I guess I would quibble a little. I do think that in terms of trying to you know, implement his will. He was working harder and harder on how to do that. When I compare years one through three with four, the real difference from the Donald Trump side of the equation is that Donald Trump left those three years feeling like he was above everything, above the law. He had escaped impeachment. He'd escaped uh, the threat of being indicted or charged for things you and I would be indicted for, evidence of obstructing a criminal investigation, as was found in the Mueller probe. He had emerged feeling as though Republicans in his party would let him pretty much do anything that he wanted to do in his quest to maintain his grasp on power. And that emboldened feeling that we saw growing and growing through years one through three left him feeling that he could really do no wrong. And unfortunately, it coincided like a perfect storm with an actual catastrophe, with an actual national security threat in the form of a pandemic. 
for which he was woefully ill-equipped to manage. And my sense is that, again, year four just proves over and over again that he had no interest in governing. What he had an interest in was spinning and winning the news cycle. And he, again, a national threat like a pandemic marching across the globe wasn't going to be curbed by good PR. And and that was a big problem. Yeah, no doubt. I, I think what I meant was, you know, when he came in, he surrounded himself with kind of brand names in order to legitimize himself and because he thought he could manage them with the power of his personality. And gradually, essentially all of them stood up to him one way or another, and he felt compelled to get rid of them. And so by the time he was getting into year four, he was trying to put people in place who wouldn't do that. And of course, one of the great things about your book is that those people never go away. You know, those people, <laughs> those people are always in the system. And, you know, people have talked about how you made a hero of Chairman Milley, but there are others throughout the administration. Let's break it down a bit. The beginning of this story of this first year is, in fact, COVID. It's the curveball. And they say administrations and presidents are defined by their crises. Crises reveal the character. When I read the book, I get the impression that what they revealed about Trump was more of the same. He cared about Trump. He didn't care about anybody else. Uh, He just wanted to dodge the bullet. Actually, managing the crisis was not his priority. Is that what you came away with? Yes, in large measure. I, I concur, David. I think that you know, he was putting himself first as he had for the first part of the presidency, the middle of the presidency, and now it's the end of the presidency, but the end of the presidency is Shakespearean in its consequences and in and his, his kind of impulsive, chaotic reaction. You know, there's something else that's happening in that final year, which is that And it was a shock to me and to Phil as we reported for the book, because we reported in real time on this year and for the newspaper, the Washington Post. And we thought, oh, we did a pretty good job capturing what happened. But when we went back to excavate, we were stunned by the number of people you would consider, you and I would consider the most stalwart Trump advisors and supporters inside the White House, inside the administration, inside the cabinet who were paralyzed with fear about the degree to which Donald Trump was putting American lives in peril, the degree to which he was undermining democracy, again, all for that short-term political gain, that personal gain. They knew he was all about Donald Trump. They just didn't realize what he was willing to sacrifice for it. One of the things that I have found in talking to people about just that phenomenon is that I'm not sure who really fully to trust. You know, in other words, there is some reputation management going on there. And I've talked to a lot of people who are very senior people, some of the people that you've spoken to, and they'll tell me they knew Trump was a problem, that they stayed in order to try to contain it. Here are some heroic stories of them doing that. And then, you know, you would say, well, why didn't you leave? And they'll say, well, I didn't leave because if I wasn't there, somebody worse would have been there. How do you reconcile that in your own mind? You know, how much of this is the story of genuine public servants doing a public service and how much of it is 
exercises in reputation management for people whose ambition outstrips everything else? I'm so glad you asked the question because A, I think it's an important one. And B, in our current environment, you know, where I'm constantly accused of being a purveyor of fake news, I do like to show my work, so to speak, and, and make it clear to people how we learn what we learn. Bill and I were both on guard for exactly the kind of reputation burnishing or rewrite that people might engage in as they sat down with us for the purposes of history. And it was easier this time to be clear to touch base with senior advisors and principals in the administration once Donald Trump had stepped down. And we were on guard for people giving us sort of accounts that would make them just look ever so more brave than they actually were, or ever so more resistant to bad, crazy ideas than they actually were. What we agreed is that we would only publish those things that were corroborated by people who were not in sort of the pocket of those individuals. So in other words, let's say we learned a lot about Chris Ray or Bill Barr or Mark Esper and how they handled a specific situation. And it made them look kind of quite favorable in terms of resisting something Donald Trump recommended. We didn't use that information unless we could corroborate it with documents other individuals who were not in league, so to speak, with those principles, people who were objective observers. And if it didn't meet that corroborated test, we didn't, we didn't publish it. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I don't mean to impugn people who are actually doing the right thing. And a lot of those people, I think, despite the way they are depicted in the media, really were public servants, really did do a service. And you know, sometimes, you know, you get cases, you, you have cases like this as well, where you have somebody who did demonstrably bad things, Attorney General Barr, defending Trump and twisting, perverting the course of justice to do so, but then standing up to him at the end. They're able to do both. They're able to do some things that we just find it impossible to deal with. And by the same time, at critical moments, they did the right thing. But it's an interesting paradox that seemed common to me. You know, I, I think you've hit on a really important theme, David, which is, you know, again, to our shock, people who had everything on the line for Donald Trump wanted to see him reelected, despite what he had done the first three years, um, eagerly working overtime to help him out politically. Bill Barr's in that category. I mean, remember, he misled an entire nation about what Robert Mueller found because he didn't agree with Robert Mueller's ability to do the investigation in the first place. He helped Roger Stone and Michael Flynn avoid the prosecution, generally speaking, that they would have faced without his intervention. And those were good friends of Donald Trump's that Trump wanted let off the hook. So some of the things Bill Barr did, you know, really cut to the core of the Department of Justice's principal being. And that's something that that's going to stay with him and stay with him as a legacy and his reputation. But again, the shocker, to your point, just like so many others, Mark Esper, supportive of Donald Trump, Mark Meadows, incredibly supportive of Donald Trump. Mike Pompeo, incredibly supportive of, of Donald Trump. Behind the scenes, each of these individuals were wrestling 
with choices Trump was making that even they couldn't countenance, they couldn't abide. Secretly, Bill Barr is meeting with Mitch McConnell, both of them pretty politically minded about the Republican Party and its future and its fortunes. And they are basically conspiring together in late November. Who is going to tell the emperor that he has no clothes? We've got to get the president to concede and we've got to get him to stop undermining the integrity of the election for the benefit of the country, also for the benefit of those Georgia runoff elections. But Mike Pompeo, you know, he was quite concerned at the end of the presidency that the crazies had taken over, as he told some of his confidants. These are people who would have done anything for Donald Trump, and even they couldn't cross these brooks. One of the divisions that I've seen, Ambassador Bill Taylor characterized it to me as the parallel processes of the official government and the unofficial government. And so the official government that resided in cabinet departments with congressional oversight and had processes that were sort of institutionalized for decades operated in a certain kind of a way, which Trump had no time for. Then there was this unofficial government and Stephen Miller and Jared Kushner and these other people around them who operated around it, ignored it. And ultimately, a lot of those people came to see them as the enemy, as the problem, that there was this kind of central group of Trump super loyalists, Cash Patel, Richard Grinnell, some, some of those folks who were the real problem. So it was all a matter of degree. Did you see that distinction as well? Well, I mean, I think that was true even before 2020. That was true before the last year. There were so many ways in which Trump loyalists were finding bureaucracy to be a pain in the neck and an obstacle. I mean, there's a reason for the Administrative Protective Act. <laughs> there's a reason for, you know, NEPA. There's a, re- you know, there's a long-standing history for notifying people about the changes in law, but they were a, a problem and an obstacle. And, you know, keep in mind, they were listening to a boss who, who didn't understand any of this and was just sort of ranting at the insanity that he couldn't get the Supreme Court to just decide something in his favor, because after all, he'd appointed three people. Didn't he have those folks loyally in his pocket? He couldn't believe the Supreme Court wouldn't take up the electoral challenge. They had a boss who didn't understand that you couldn't, by executive order, wipe away a law, which is what, you know, again, going way back in the beginning of the presidency, he asked Rex Tillerson to do, which was to void the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, the law that prevents and prohibits and prosecutes people for bribing foreign officials. So they had a lot of pressure on them to ignore the other government that you talk about, the official government. And what's interesting to me is how much the official government and the Trump loyalists started to see slowly eye to eye towards the end. And eye to eye, I mean, wait a minute, this this has gone too far. I think one of the factors in all of that, and you alluded to it at the outset, is that there was this kind of myth, you even saw it in the media to some degree at the beginning of the administration, that Trump would grow into the job. But he actually sort of shrank into the job. He became diminished. He became more 
Trumpian, more impulsive, a little bit less rational at some times during the course of the last year than the beginning. In other words, there's no sign that the presidency had changed him for the better in any way. But maybe I missed one. Did you see one? (laughs) I think you've got something there about shrinking into the presidency. And you're right. I did allude to it earlier. As the years went on, the first three especially, remember he emerged victorious from a federal investigation that found in four instances, if he had not been the sitting president, he would be indicted for a federal crime. He emerged victorious from an impeachment, one that looked at whether or not, and there was pretty copious documentary evidence of it, whether or not he had sought to enlist a foreign power in investigating an American citizen. You know, there's a reason why Lieutenant Colonel Vindman ran the day of that call with between Trump and the Ukrainian president, ran to the White House counsel's office saying, I I think the president, if he hasn't committed a crime, I think what he's done is wrong. But Trump emerged victorious from that. And so what was the result? At the end of 2019, as he enters a year that will be challenging for a methodical and regimented and standard president, he enters it emboldened, feeling that he can do no wrong and that he is his best PR, own best PR agent. He is his own best lawyer. He is his own best pollster. And he rejects the advice of a lot of people who have salient things and expertise to offer him, including Bill Barr, including Mark Esper, including General Milley, just casts it aside. When Alex Azar, his Health and Human Services Secretary, again, a supporter of Donald Trump, a longtime member of the Republican Party, went in there with eyes open, when he tells him, you know, you have got to focus on on how serious this virus is, and it is going to be this defining element of your presidency, The president's like, no, I don't think so. That kind of rejection of expertise ends up contributing to Donald Trump's loss in November because the American people are afraid. Even supporters of Donald Trump have grown a little bit worried about exactly the governing operation he's heading up. Well, that gets to the the climax of the four years and the climax of the book, because if COVID was the defining crisis, or at least it would have been in a traditional presidency, the thing that history may look at is the assault on democracy at the end. Now, many have argued he was laying the groundwork for that assault from 2016, when he said, if I lose this, the election's not going to be legitimate. And of course, enlisting a foreign power and, and seeking to blackmail other foreign powers into helping him win the elections suggest he'll do anything to win. He has got no rules and scruples. And yet somehow it was in this process of the last couple of months of the Trump presidency that he crossed the line for almost everybody. And Milley comes out particularly powerfully in your book. And I think a few days before January 6th, he's going saying this is the Reichstag moment. And, you know, I read that and I sort of had to stop myself and say, don't take this in stride. Don't say, oh, this is another crazy scene from the Trump administration. In any other circumstance, 
to have the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff say that about the president would be, you know, sort of, you know, a turning point of history, that this was a crisis unlike any crisis that we'd ever seen before in America. And yet here we are, nine months later, it's just been somehow accepted. And I, you know, I read the book and it's very dramatic. I, you know, obviously lived through this. And we're at a moment where there literally seemed to be nothing that Trump can do, including trying to bring down the republic for which he will be held accountable. Well, what's interesting is that a couple of people stood in the brink in that very tense period. And I 100,000% agree with you that when the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is worried that the president is speaking the gospel of the Fuhrer, that it is just bone chilling and, and it is historic and it is not happened in this country, at least not in the modern history that I have read. Yet people put themselves in between Donald Trump and his effort to apparently send democracy off the rails. And between him and the fringe individuals around him who were pushing that, you know, Michael Flynn, who said famously at the end of December and frighteningly, that the president should declare martial law in swing states and seize the voting machines and quote unquote rerun the election. I don't know how much more banana republic you can get than that. But there were people who heard that like a dog whistle, and there were people who heard that like the gospel of the Fuhrer and began planning for how would they throw their bodies in front of such an order? How would they stop and block this? And as you know from reading the book, but maybe some of your listeners don't, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, along with the rest of his Joint Chiefs of the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force, began talking about serially resigning if the president handed down an order they believed was unethical or would undermine democracy and put it at risk. And their goal was, well, under the legal steps, anything Donald Trump asks us to do, our duty is to give him our best reasoned advice. And when we are called to give that advice, we will give it. And if it is not observed, we will resign. And then the next person will be the acting joint chief and acting chairman. So that's pretty interesting. Another person that stands in the brink, and you know, there are a lot of people who think he's the definition of sycophancy during the Trump presidency, is Vice President Mike Pence. The day of January 6th, no one could have been more stubbornly resisting what Donald Trump wanted and what Donald Trump supporters wanted because he refused to leave the building until they certified the election. And he refused to leave it while people were chanting outside his door and outside his hideaway and above his head for his literal head. My reaction to that is yes and no. I'm not questioning what you've said, but people did stand up. All the defense secretaries of the United States got together as they've never done, wrote a letter saying that this would be a bad thing. And yet, within days of this January 6th event, this conversion starts to take place at a high level in the Republican Party, at which they start saying, no, that wasn't so bad. Those were tourists. The extremist wing of the party is not so extreme. 
They allowed people to continue questioning the results of the election. They went about their business trying to undertake voter suppression measures in in three dozen states of the United States. And so, you know, I'm left with the impression that the coup attempt is continuing and that it is continuing by and large with very few exceptions. You've got some colorful ones in there with Liz Cheney, but with very few exceptions, with the support of the entire Republican Party. You know, that's a twist ending I didn't expect for your book. I I didn't expect it as we were reporting it in real time. You know, it seemed pretty palpable and demonstrably true what happened on January 6th. Absolutely shocking attempt at an insurrection, absolutely stunning violence by individuals seeking to undo the results of an election that was definitively the most carefully monitored one in American history. Chris Krebs, you know, lost his job for saying it, but it was true and it was documentable. The Republicans who have tried to sort of rewrite that history, rewrite what happened, make it seem a little bit less frightening, less violent, less bear spray, (laughs) less Capitol Police and Metropolitan Police Department officers crying out for their own lives. They seem to be doing this, and I'm not in their heads and hearts, but their advisors tell me that they are doing this because Donald Trump remains the standard bearer for this party. And he's convinced voters and uh, and his supporters, most importantly, that the election was rigged. He continues to trumpet that. And they believe he is their savior in some respects, the protector of the country that they feel is being ripped out of their hands. Some country where it's less diverse, where the economic winds are sailing their way, where they are not so left behind. And that is a group of voters that all of the Republicans in Congress need to continue getting reelected. And they seem to have chosen getting reelected over telling the truth. Or honoring their oath to the Constitution. Or honoring the Capitol Police officers who protected their lives. And here we are, after these two books of yours, but no, nobody could read anything else. They could just read these two books, and you would have to conclude Donald Trump was finished in American politics. You could, if you could say these things in a substantiated way about Donald Trump, he should be finished in American politics. And he's not. Is that because he's Donald Trump, or is that because the Republican Party realizes that a big chunk of their base has these grievances, and this guy has become the vehicle for them. And they are just essentially using Trump to mobilize their their party, regardless of the fact that he's Trump. You know, I've heard many people who were either advisors to President Trump or who were Republican operatives looking for the future of this party and what would happen to it say in different forms that Donald Trump was simply a symptom, not the cause, but a symptom of of something deeper in this country. However, let's give Donald Trump his due. He was a genius at tapping into 
this group of voters and Americans who feel left behind by the economy, by the country, unsettled, unmoored. They feel they're looked down upon. They don't like the browning of the country, the, the diversification of the country. And they may be the first generation in American history where a large portion of their children will not do better than them. And this is all pretty rough stuff. Donald Trump has tapped into their frustration, their anger, and their fear. And that happened, that was existing before he arrived. But here's the genius. He didn't just tap into it. He turned up the volume. He didn't address their fears and angers. He increased them. That's what we're left with after his presidency. A country that had its fractures, had a large group of American people feeling disaffected and left behind, and now convinced that their savior has been defrocked, has been taken off the stage and taken away from them. And unfortunately, they didn't need for Donald Trump to do anything to benefit their lives to rally behind him, rally behind this savior. Quite the contrary. They rallied behind him in spite of the damage that he did. Everybody who is listening to this has been watching this, living it in real time. But I really encourage you to go and read I Alone Can Fix It by Carol Enig, Philip Rucker, Donald J. Trump's catastrophic final year, because it's good to have many sources tell the narrative in a chronological fashion and be able to reflect on it as you can only do when you've got a great book. This is that. This is a great book. And uh, it's really important to understand where we are because every issue that is flagged in this book is still with us. Fortunately, both of you guys are still out there uh, reporting this. And uh, I, I know that people will continue to follow that as well. Thank you very much for your time, Carol. Thank you, everybody, for your time listening. For more on what we've got cooking, go to the dsrnetwork.com. And if you feel so inclined, click on membership, help to support what we're doing here. We've got more coming this week and every week, and you can uh, follow that at the website. In the meantime, still pretty dangerous out there. So take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.